Hey church family, welcome back to another Leroy UMC podcast. We're continuing our series titled Living for the End. So the vast majority of church history has been focused not on fighting and resisting death with rage and anger, but trying to find the good death, a death in which we can find closure, peace, build our faith, and leave this life with grace and love. This has always been one of the most hopeful and inspirational goals of the Christian life. That's what Jesus does at the Last Supper. He's intentionally finding peace and closure with his disciples. Let's send it over to Pastor Matthias. Well, friends, this morning we are continuing uh, with our Lenten series uh, that we're calling Living for the End. As we've uh, been reminding ourselves, Lent has always been a time in the church calendar when we can wrestle together with somewhat heavier subjects and when we tend to, when we follow Christ on that road towards Jerusalem as Jesus prepared himself for Good Friday for the cross. Uh, and with all that in mind, this year we've been talking about the cross. We've been talking about the end. We've been talking about death uh, and how preparing for death is actually one of the oldest spiritual disciplines that our faith uh, has to offer. Uh, just to recap, the first Sunday we talked about how Christ gives us freedom to even talk about death. It's a subject that people are, are often uncomfortable with today, but Christ talks about it freely and openly. Uh, second Sunday we talked about how facing the cross forces us to reevaluate, reprioritize what really matters to us, uh, last Sunday, we talked about how death can be an invitation to live fully each and every day that we have. Uh, and this morning, we are taking another angle as we look at uh, the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, and so we actually have two scripture readings this morning. The first is from Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 20, and the second from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. But friends, from the Gospel of Luke, listen now for the word of the Lord. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And friends, from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am 
the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, as we look for your new life on the road to Jerusalem this morning, I ask that if this message speaks your truth and shows your grace, then may it resonate with someone here and be remembered. But Lord, if this message does not speak your truth, then let it be forgotten in an instant. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> After 10% of the population had died from a great famine, and after 30 to 60% of the population had died from the Black Plague, in 1415, a new book began to appear in bookshops and in libraries all across Europe that taught people how to die well. It was called the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. And it was written as a six-chapter, step-by-step instructional manual for how a person could achieve a good death. The book began in chapter one by telling readers that death was nothing to be afraid of, but in fact, could actually be a holy moment, one of the most important moments in your life, and a moment to prepare for with intentionality and purpose. The next chapter was all about some of the temptations, some of the struggles that a person confronted with death might face, and how to overcome them. Depression, doubts, anger, even impatience. The third chapter had a list of questions for the dying person to consider. The fourth was a guide for how to imitate Jesus as he faced the cross, and the book went on like that. Each chapter and each section founded on the single conviction that one of the highest and noblest goals that a person can aspire to in this life is to one day find a good death. And built on the idea that dying is not just something that happens to us, but dying is an art. It's a process that takes time, attention, care, and grace. You have to admit that is very different from the way we tend to think about death today. We've talked about it before. Sometimes today we're tempted to think about death as a frightening, menacing, future medical, biological event that one day will happen to us. But it's, it's amazing to me to think that that frightening view of death is actually pretty recent. You could argue that for most of history, Christians have thought of death as a bit of a holy moment, a holy transition, and thought of dying as a spiritual discipline, as a process that almost brings us closer to God. And the book, the Ars Moriendi, was wildly popular at the time. In fact, 
it became one of the very first bestsellers thanks to a, a new invention called the printing press. Serious technology at the time. Incredibly, because so much of the population in Europe at the time was illiterate, they even came out with a picture version of the Ars Moriendi. It was composed of 11 woodcut images that showed in very simple pictures what the phases of a good death looked like. But maybe the most incredible thing about the Ars Moriendi is how much that manual for dying well was not about you. The last sections of the Ars Moriendi weren't actually addressed to the dying individual themselves, but to the friends caregivers, neighbors, co-workers, family members who might be in the room and were designed to teach them what to say in that moment, how to pray together, how to forgive each other, how to find closure together. Of course, that's something that isn't always easy to do and something that doesn't come naturally to us. When we think about death today, again, we don't just tend to think of it as a frightening future event, but we're sometimes tempted to focus on the individual, on how I feel about it, what I think, what I want or need. But the Ars Moriendi reminded people in no uncertain terms that death isn't something that just affects your life, but affects every life that your life has touched. Dying well is something that involves all the ministries and all the groups, all the neighbors and co-workers, all the friends and family around us. Because a good death isn't just about you. It's about what you leave behind. When Jesus sat down at the Last Supper table, my guess is his mind was fixed on how to die well. And I think that Luke knew it. The Last Supper is a moment that appears in all four Gospels, but all four of the Gospel writers take a slightly different approach to it. They all appreciate something a bit different about that moment. And what I love about the Gospel of Luke's version is that Luke adds the detail about how much Jesus has actually been looking forward to it. Luke 22:15. Jesus starts the meal by saying, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke even emphasizes the point by making that word for eagerly epithumia, which has this sense of craving, hungering, longing for something. Jesus, in a way, has been looking forward to this moment since he first turned his attention towards Jerusalem, since he first started preparing himself for the cross. And Jesus has been looking forward to it because this is the last supper. This is the last moment Jesus will get with his disciples before he's arrested and before he dies. This is Jesus' chance to say what needs to be said, to tie up loose ends, to find closure. That's the thing about the Last Supper, when 
When we think about the Last Supper, we tend to focus on communion, on what it means to us. But for Jesus, the Last Supper is, for all intents and purposes, his deathbed. It's that last chance and last moment before he leaves this life. And for Jesus, it's a moment that's all about figuring out how to face that death well. But the strange thing about that last moment is that so little of that last moment is about Jesus himself. Jesus may be at the center of the table, but you almost get the sense in the four gospel versions that Jesus isn't the main focus. Instead, the real focus of the Last Supper, that last moment, is placed on the ones around Jesus and on what Jesus leaves behind for them. That's something that John appreciates in his version of the Last Supper. In the Gospel of John, the Last Supper actually unfolds over the course of five chapters. It is five chapters long, and almost all of it is dialogue. John's memory of the Last Supper wasn't of a formal sacramental ritual, but John remembered an intimate, personal conversation around the dinner table between old friends who have become like family. John remembered how it was in that last moment that Jesus finally said everything he needed to say to the ones closest to him, and how Jesus gave them all a chance to say what they needed to say to him, to ask any question, to resolve any issue, to bring everything out into the open, the good and the bad. Because Jesus was determined to bury every hatchet, resolve every issue, and leave behind real, lasting closure for the ones he cared about. John remembered how it was in that last moment that Jesus gave them all the promise, the hope, that they would hold on to in all the decades to come after Jesus was gone. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus had told them, I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus doesn't want the ones he's leaving behind to be afraid, to be discouraged, to feel helpless after he's gone. So Jesus is intentional about leaving behind a vision of hope, leaving behind a sense of peace for the ones who would come later. But more than just leaving closure, more than just leaving peace, Jesus leaves them a way to actually continue their relationship with him. For us, communion is a sacrament, but for the disciples, communion wasn't just that. Communion was also a way of grieving by continuing their relationship with the loved one they had lost. That's actually something that grief therapists have come to appreciate over the past century or so, that people don't tend to grieve by moving on or getting over it. That is the worst advice you can give to someone going through loss. But one of the most effective ways that people grieve is by finding little 
rituals, little habits, objects, little things that in some way help us to continue honoring and continue our bond with them. In practical terms, at the Last Supper, Jesus is leaving his disciples with an invaluable way to mourn the loss they're about to feel while also leaving them with a sacrament through which Jesus will continue to actually be present in a very real way at all of their tables over all the years to come. From saying all that needs to be said to have a sense of closure, to giving a promise that leaves peace, to creating a ritual that leaves a relationship, Jesus spends the Last Supper, his last moment, not focusing on himself so much as on the ones who matter most to him and on making sure he leaves something beautiful behind for them because it's by leaving behind a legacy of hope, of comfort, and of new life for the ones he cares about that Jesus prepares to die well. That's the thing about dying well and about that good death that generations of Christians have strived to find. Dying well isn't just about how you feel or what you think, about when it comes or how it comes, or even if it's fair or unfair. Those are all important things, but those aren't the only thing. Instead, dying well isn't so much about us as it is about what we leave behind and who or what we leave it to. Dying well is something that forces us to consider very seriously what will our life ultimately mean after we're gone. Will we leave behind peace or unresolved hurt? Will we leave a sense of joy and cheerful memories or apathy and indifference? Will we leave convictions that inspire or will we leave short-sighted resentment? Dying well forces us to consider what will be our legacy and who or what will inherit it. But the thing is, if we can do that, if we can ask those heavy questions, if we can think of death not so much as a nightmare to be feared, as a holy moment to be prepared for, if we can strive to one day find that highest and noblest goal of a good death, if we can do all things, all those things, not only can we die well, but we might just find that we can begin to live well. And that's the real beauty of it. The goal, the art of dying well is a discipline that invites us to see our lives in terms of the bigger picture. To think about what our life will mean after we're gone. Think about the legacy we're creating for our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our loved ones with every decision we make. And think about what we have to do in order to leave a legacy that's worth leaving behind. Not someday, but this day. 
A good death is not something that comes only when the time for leaving this life finally comes, but a good death only comes at the end of a good life. That's the good news. We master the art of dying well by living well because it is an art that reminds us that our death and our life are never just about us. They're about all the ministries, causes, and groups that we give all of our time to. It's about the co-workers, neighbors that we invest ourselves in. It's about all the friends and family around us that we love. It's about the grace that we live out, and it's about the grace we leave behind for them. It isn't always easy, I'll admit. When we think about dying, we're often tempted to focus on that individual, what I think, what I feel, what I want or need. But the good news is, as the Ars Moriendi reminds us, and as Jesus Christ shows us dying well is a lifelong art that reaches all the things and all the people around us because a good death isn't just about you it's about the peace the love the grace the legacy that we get to leave behind the art of dying is the art of living well Because in living and in dying, our story is never just about us. It's about what we leave behind, and above all, it's about who gathers at our table that we get to leave it to. And thanks be to God for it. Amen. Friends, please pray with me. Christ Jesus, call us to your table and teach us how to die well, that we might know how to live well. Lord, help us to take that step back and look at our lives in terms of the bigger picture. Help us to think about all the people in our lives we get to have an impact on. Think about all the ministries we get to fuel, all the changes we get to work, the legacy we get to leave behind for generations that come after us, to think about all the ways our one story gets to change so many other stories. And then God help us to live in ways that matter. Lord, as we come to your table and as we follow you to the cross this Lenten season, may you show us how to find a good death, that we might learn how to live a perfect life with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Again, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you are blessed and that you are a blessing. Go in peace.